Good morning. All right, I am going to call you guys back to uh, focus here as we continue with our worship service moving ahead. Good to see you this morning. Hey, uh, before we jump in, I, I want to say that for any of you who were not here last week, uh, because I do know that not everyone here goes to church every week, although you should. Um, I do, so you should as well. But um, uh, last week, we made an announcement that after a lot of prayer and consideration, the elders at Cedar Mill, of which myself and Dan Larson are a part of, uh, made the decision to ask Pastor Josh Sun to step down as our worship and arts pastor. Um, we made this decision in no way because of any sort of a sin issue or moral failure. Uh, It was simply just an issue of connection and and right fit and not feeling like Pastor Josh was the right fit for our church in that role moving ahead. And so um, we made that decision, difficult call. Uh, And instead of hashing it out all over again this Sunday, I want to let you know that the transcript of what was said last week is available out in the lobby at the Welcome Center if you want to take a look at that if you weren't here. Also, if you uh, got that news and that's hard news for you and you just need to talk to somebody or you need some more answers or have a few questions, we want you to know that the pastoral staff and the elders are all here and available for you to process with if that would be helpful for you. Um, So take advantage of that if you need to. And then last but not least on that, we do want to send Josh and Ariel off with some encouragement. So we had talked about the possibility of having a reception that may not happen at this point. And so what we're doing is we're asking you to write down just some caring, encouraging words um, for Josh and thanking them for their time here and the work they put in. And so we have cards available for you again in the lobby. But if you are someone who connected with Josh, you appreciate him, um, you had a relationship, please take the time to do that. We do want to send him out um, encouraged and want him to know that he was um, was loved. So, so if you would do that as a church family, that I think would be a good and gracious response and good thing to do okay all right let me pray and then we're going to jump into message this morning father this morning we ask for your spirit to come and to fill this place in our minds and hearts to help us to hear your word in just the way that we need to today and so we ask that you would speak um, that we would hear that that we would be open to what you want to do in our lives and in our church. And um, so we give you this time and we avail ourselves to listening to your voice. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you have your Bibles this morning, grab them. We're going to be in Luke chapter 7. We are back into the Gospel of Luke. We are jumping in this morning to a new stretch, a new series in Luke's Gospel. And we are calling it The One And it is about the one, a whole series just about Jesus. And as you turn to Luke 7, let me uh, remind you what has just happened as we pick up the story again that Luke is telling here. Jesus Jesus in, in Luke's gospel has just finished probably his most famous sermon. It's the sermon that Matthew calls the Sermon on the Mount but in Luke is referred to as the Sermon on the Plain. And then, and then right after the Sermon on the Plain, right after that, at the beginning of chapter 7, Jesus heals a centurion's servant, a Roman soldier. Um, his servant is healed by Jesus, and Jesus lifts up the centurion as a man of great faith, something that would have 
uh, sort of shocked the people um, of Jesus' day that he would interact with a Gentile and, a, and an oppressor in some ways in that way. And then immediately after that, Jesus goes to the town of Nain, this town, this little teeny village that was associated with the great Old Testament prophets, Elijah and Elisha. And while he's there, he raises a widow's son from the dead, something very messiah-esque to do and so he 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 performs these these miracles and so on one hand on the one hand jesus is doing all these things that point towards him being the messiah the one people expected the one they looked forward to as the savior um, of their people and of the world and yet on another on the other hand he's not doing some things they expected him to do. He's not engaging in some of the activities. And in fact, he's engaging with some people they wouldn't have expected him to engage with. And so with that tension of Jesus meeting and not meeting expectations, Luke continues his account with these words. Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 18. John's disciples told him about all these things, the things that I was just referring reviewing you on um and so calling two of them john sent them to the lord that's jesus to ask are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else when the men came to jesus they said john the baptist sent us to you to ask are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else Now, what you'll notice here is that Luke very intentionally writes this story such that this question, the central question, does not just get asked once, but twice. He writes it so that we will read this question over and over again. And that's because for Luke, this is not just a question that John the Baptist had for Jesus. It's not just his question. It's a question that he wants the church, he wants us to consider as well. Who is Jesus for us? Have we resolved in our minds and hearts who he actually is? Are you the one who is to come? And that little phrase, the one who is to come, is actually just one Greek word translated into five English words because Greek is just that cool of a thick language. Um, And the Greek word is erkomai. And it literally just means the coming one. It was perhaps the most common title in the Jewish world, for the Messiah. And so he asks, are you the Messiah? And in the first century, there was a lot of debate about how many prophets were going to come before or supersede the Messiah. How many prophets before Messiah actually showed up? And so now John is wondering, are you the Messiah? Or are you just one who's preceding the Messiah? Is the Messiah still to come after you? And the first question I want to ask this morning of us is this. What is it that causes John to question and and even seemingly doubt Jesus in this moment? Because all of a sudden, he seems fairly unsure. And if you remember back to Luke chapter 3, which I know was many, many, many months ago, but if you remember back to Luke chapter 3 with me, at one point he was not unsure. This is the guy who boldly proclaimed Jesus as the coming king. This is the guy who said, I'm not even fit to carry his sandals. This is the one who witnessed the baptism, who was in the water with Jesus, who actually performed the baptism, who saw the Holy Spirit descend like a dove on Jesus, who heard the voice from heaven say, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. And now he's questioning. 
Well, we've got to understand why. We've got to understand how John gets to a place where he asks Jesus this question. First of all, let me tackle it from this angle. Why does John send two of his disciples to ask this of Jesus instead of simply going to talk to himself? himself? I mean, obviously, they connected. They were friends. He was asked to do Jesus' baptism. I don't know if that was how it went, but that's how it goes in our church. But he did Jesus' baptism, so they know each other, at least on some level. And yet, John doesn't just go to Jesus and say, Hey, man, you know, quick question over here. Are you the guy? Are you the Messiah? Are you the one who's to come? You know? No, he sends these two disciples off. Why does he do that? Any thoughts? Yeah. John can't go to Jesus himself because John is in prison. Listen to what Luke tells us way back in chapter 3. But when John rebuked Herod, the Tetrarch, because of his marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he had done, when John sort of like attacks the ruler of the region in which he lives and talks about all the bad stuff he's done, Herod added this to them all. Herod decides, well, I'm going to add one more evil thing to the list. He locked John up in prison. So now John's in prison, and I'm not sure about you, but I'm just going to take a wild guess and, and, and sort of lob out the idea here that I'm thinking no one in here ever thought to themselves, man, I can't wait till someday I get to be in prison. Anyone just like dream of being in prison someday? No, and John neither. And so things have not gone for John and his life the way he hoped they would. He's in prison. He's been thrown into jail by Herod, the Tetrarch, Herod Antipas. And just by way of review, Herod Antipas was the ruler of two separate regions in the area. He was the ruler up in Galilee, um, and he was also ruler of this desert wilderness region just to the east of the Jordan River. And if you click to the next slide, we've got a little map here. I've even color-coded it for you. You can see the purple areas are where Herod Antipas rules, and then the other areas are ruled by these other two guys, um, Philip and Archelaus. Now, this whole entire region at one time was ruled by one man, Herod the Great, Herod the Great is the guy who tried to kill Jesus when he was a little baby boy in Bethlehem and how the hell the kids, all the baby boys murdered. That's Herod the Great. He's the father. He dies. His kingdom is divided up primarily amongst his sons, Herod Philip, Herod Archelaus, and Herod Antipas. He was sort of like George Foreman. He just named all of his kids the same name. Right? It was sort of a deal. And you can see the parts that Herod Antipas inherited were... Perea, down on the, in the southeast, uh, and then up in the north he inherited Galilee. So that's Herod Antipas. That's the Herod, of the, the Tetrarch. It just means quarter king, like a little partial king. Um, that's the Herod we're talking about today. And Perea, this place down in the southeast, uh, that's the place where John uh, primarily performed most of his ministry. He was out there um, in the Jordan River and by the Jordan River, out in the wilderness. That's where he did most of his preaching and teaching. And while he was there, in Herod's territory, he decided to speak out against the ruler, against Herod himself, because Herod had married his brother Philip's wife. He'd he'd discarded his own wife, and then he had an affair with, and taken on his brother's wife as his own, and even though he was a very powerful, wealthy, um, you know, extremely influential individual, and a lot of people were scared to speak out against him, John wasn't. John never shrunk back from rebuking Herod for his behavior. He boldly preaches that what Herod is up to and the way he's living his life is immoral and an abomination to God. And Herod doesn't like this, so John is thrown into jail, but not just any jail. Herod actually 
locks John up in the dungeon of an old Herodian palace that had been turned into a fortress. It was called Macarus. And it was located about five miles to the east and 15 miles south of the northern tip of the Dead Sea. And down deep in the bottom, you can see on the map where it is, yeah, uh, down deep in the bottom of this, like in the basement of this old fortress, way down in the dungeon, there was a pit. And at the bottom of that pit, this dark, stifling, stuffy, hot dungeon pit, that's where John the Baptist was stuck. That's where he sits when he sends word to Jesus out in the middle of nowhere in a dark, dingy dungeon. And now the man who at one time out in the wild preached about Jesus and said, there comes one after me that is mightier than I. There is one coming who will make things in this world right. There is one coming into the world who will make crooked roads straight and fill in the valleys and bring wrath for those to do evil. Now he's experiencing the evil in his life firsthand. Listen actually to what Jesus or John says about Jesus in Luke 3 again. He says, His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenching fire. So John, as he preaches about Jesus, as he heralds Jesus, as he announces Jesus, has this picture of what the Messiah would do. He, he believed and preached that when Messiah came, the prisoners would be set free along with the captives. And now all of a sudden, John finds himself to be one of those prisoners, one of those captives, and he thinks to himself, what is going on? This is not the way things are supposed to go. You ever felt like John? You ever watch your dreams and your life and your expectations crumble before your eyes? Ever have a moment where you... Maybe you felt like, or maybe you even have looked up to the sky and said, God, do you care? Do you even care about me? Are you even there? Do you really, I mean, are you real, Jesus? Do you love me the, the way that you say you do? Because it doesn't feel like it in my life right now. You know, I thought we were going this way. I thought my life was headed down this path. We were going there together, and now all of a sudden, at some point, we took a wrong turn. And I just want to pause and say this. If that's where you are today... If you've ever been in that place, if you've ever asked those kinds of questions, then you're in pretty good company. Because the one who announced Jesus, the man who Jesus will say later in verse 28, is among the greatest in the history of the world. He asked those, those kinds of questions too. And now Jesus will answer him. And as he does, Luke will use his answer to, to answer us as well. Verse 21 At that very time, now it's interesting how Luke writes that. It's almost as if Luke is saying, Jesus is about to do these things, not coincidentally, but as an answer to the question that has been brought to him. Are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Well, it just so happens that at that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. You see, Jesus is speaking John's language now. In fact, each phrase of this statement fulfills a different prophecy in the book of Isaiah about the Messiah. 
to the, the book of the book of Isaiah says, when Messiah comes, the blind will receive sight, and the lame will walk, and lepers will be cleansed, and the deaf will hear, and the dead raised, and the poor will will receive good news. And what Jesus is saying to John in this moment is, trust me, trust in who you know I am. Even though your situation is difficult, trust in the fact that I am the one you announced. Friends, have you ever noticed uh, that God rarely, if ever, explains himself to you? I mean, he, I mean, it just never happens. It doesn't happen in the Bible. It doesn't happen in real life. You go through something challenging. You go through something hard. You know, you go through a really difficult stretch and you're wondering what is going on. God never shows up and says, you know, let me just tell you for a second, Dave, why I'm allowing this to happen. Here's the reasoning. Here's the plan. Here's how it's all going to work itself out. And in the end, it's all going to sort of wrap up this way. And by the way, the whole reason why I'm allowing all of it to happen is for these reasons. For your own good or for the good of your kids or your church will be better. He never does that. He never shows up and sort of gives the plan, offers the broader picture to us. He simply says, when we face difficult things, trust in me. Cling to who you know that I am. He doesn't explain it to us. Trust in what you've heard, he says. Trust in what you see. Trust that even though things don't make sense and the future seems uncertain, I am the one that you've waited for. You see, trust is easy when things are clear, isn't it? I mean, it seems trust seems like one of those things that's so simple when it's simple and then it's not when it's not. When, when things are going good and they're just as you planned and they're just as you expected, it's easy to trust in those moments. But all of a sudden, when you find yourself in a place that you swore you'd never be, in a place that you don't want to be, that's when it gets challenging. That's when it's hard to trust God. When all of a sudden you wake up and you're in a marriage that's struggling or you're hit with a diagnosis that you never anticipated, or a relationship in your life has gone sideways and you can't for the life of you figure out how you ended up here, or you're facing some issue that you never wanted to face, the question is, do you still believe Jesus is the one? Even when God doesn't give you the plan, God never says, hey, come follow me, I got a really good plan He says, come follow me and trust me, no matter what the plan, no matter what the situation, no matter what your circumstance. And John is struggling. John is asking Jesus about who he is because his situation is tough. And and that's okay with Jesus. I love that about Jesus in this passage. He's okay with John's question. He's okay with John's question. And, And he ends this section with this little phrase in verse 23. He says, blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. And that word stumble in this verse is the Greek word skandalizo, skandalizo. Now, I know most of you are not Greek experts, but humor me for a second and just take a stab at what English word you think we might possibly get from the Greek word skandalizo. Yeah, scandal or scandalous, right? And so that's sort of woven into what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is now going to use John and his question and his situation to teach us about what it means to follow him, what it means to be a part of his kingdom and to live for him and for his kingdom. Blessed is the one who does not stumble. Blessed is the one 
who does not fall away. Blessed is the one who is not offended by the scandalous nature of my kingdom. Blessed is the one who holds on when safe shifts to scandalous. Blessed is the one who when following me shifts from comfortable to contentious. They hang in there. Blessed are those who hold on to God even when life doesn't go the way you expect. Are you in that place right now? Where your life's hard? Been there before? When things aren't going the way you hoped, the way you expected, Jesus says, don't stumble, don't fall away. Hold on to me. Not some plan that you've conceived in your mind and you've tried to graft me into. Verse 24. After John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No. Those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, there was no one greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Now, this is my favorite part of the whole sermon. So if, I, if you're already asleep, like if you're thinking about the Super Bowl later, like stop it. It's church. It's Jesus time. Seahawks will come later. Focus in because the, the depths of what Jesus says here are so rich and deep that I'm sure we'll only get, get a, a little bit of it. But, but try to focus in. I'll start this way. Rulers and governments and politicians have always and still always do try to communicate um, with the masses to shape public opinion. You see this all the time where like governments or organizations or even individuals are trying to shape public opinion about themselves and they do this through just mass communication. And, and in the first century world, um, a majority of the people were illiterate. So one of the primary ways that politicians would promote themselves was through money. They would use money, this thing that everybody would have in their hands all the time. And what they would do is they would just print their picture on coins. And so how do I keep my face in front of you? How do I keep you remembering that I'm the ruler, that I'm the king, that I'm the one in charge? I just put my face right on the money that you have to use every day. It's just a way of sort of personal PR. And it worked great, except for in Israel, they ran into trouble. Why? Yeah, the Jews were against anything that sort of resembled um, a graven image because that's commandment number two, make no graven image. And so when politicians would try to put their face on coins, the Jews would have a hissy fit. And so they had to find a way around this. And so what they would do um, is they would adopt a symbol. They would choose some other sort of thing that represented them and they would stamp that thing on the money instead of their face and so it sort of sidestepped the whole graven image thing. And Herod Antipas, you know, the guy who rules in Galilee and down in Perea who's locked up John, the symbol he chose to represent himself was a Galilean reed. And he chose a Galilean reed because he ruled in Galilee and there were all these reeds all over the shoreline of the Sea of Galilee. And so he associated himself with this reed that people would see constantly. And what he would do is he would have, instead of his face, he'd have that reed stamped onto coins. And we have an example here from archaeology. There's like a little bit of, oh, there it is. Yeah, so you can see he would stamp this reed that they would see all over the place. 
So when people thought of the reed, when they saw the reed, the goal of Herod was they would think of him and they would remember that he ruled and he would get like, you know, kind of lifted up and bolstered up. It's kind of like in our day when you see like an elephant. What political party do you think of? It's okay to say it. The, the first service was really nervous about this part too. I, I just, what do you think of when you think an, see an elephant? Republican. Republican. Yeah, it's not a bad word. You can say it in church. And what do you think of when you see a donkey? Okay, good. Very good. The first service was like, no way. I'm not saying either of those words in church. My parents told me not to, and I will not do it. Right? Same sort of idea here. So for Herod, it was, it was a reed and associated with him. Okay, so Jesus now, like with that as our backdrop, Jesus, who's actually in Galilee when he says these things, goes to the crowd and he says, hey, you've come out here. You went out to the wilderness in search of the kingdom of God, in search of, of like what, who God is and what he's all about. And he says, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed? And then he adds this little descriptor to, to Herod's symbol. A reed swayed by the wind? In other words, did you go out into the wilderness to see a man who will just sort of go wherever the wind blows? Whose moral compass just sort of shifts to meet his personal need at every corner and at every whim? By the way, and then he says, if not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? And by the way, Herod was known for the extravagance of his dress and that sort of sat in opposition to John the Baptist and who was known for what? What did he wear? Like, yeah, camel skin. He was not like a real, you know, swanky dresser in the, in the least. And so, so, did you go out to see a man who, who wear fine clothes? No, those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are where? In palaces. In case you didn't know, friends, we're talking about Herod. He's saying, you know, and by the way, this is a real bold move from Jesus because he's in Herod's region, the guy who already locked up John for sort of publicly slandering him. And now Jesus is saying, I'll do it too. I'll do it too. Jesus was was pretty tough. Um, But what did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. And then Jesus goes on from there to talk about John the Baptist. And I, I want to just ask you, do you see what Jesus is doing here? It's genius. It's beautiful. It's so subversive and cool. He's contrasting John the Baptist with Herod. And here's what he's saying. He's saying, let me give you two pictures. Let me paint for you a picture of two different kinds of people. First, a man who will do and say anything to avoid trouble and build himself an earthly kingdom of comfort and pleasure and wealth. That's picture one. That's man number one. And then there's man number two. A man who will stand for and speak for and proclaim truth even when it lands him in the dark, dingy, lonely dungeon of a castle. And Jesus says, if you want to know what the kingdom looks like, if you want to know what the kingdom life looks like, don't look at Herod. Don't look at people who will just tell you what they want you to hear so that you'll like them and they'll prosper. Don't look at them. You look at John. Because it may seem backwards and it may seem weird to think about someone who's locked in the basement dungeon prison pit and think they embody the kingdom life. But Jesus says, that's exactly what I'm saying. You hold on to truth even when it leads to hardship. See, it's not a kingdom where you're just swayed by the wind, where... You just make choices at random to suit your needs, to get yourself ahead so that you can live a more comfortable, pleasant life. That's not what Jesus was about. It's not a kingdom where you bend and tweak tweak right and wrong to fit with whatever makes you comfortable. It's a kingdom where 
You don't shrink back from opposition and hardship and persecution. Jesus says John may be in prison. John may be struggling and wrestling with sin and evil and the difficulty of this world, but John gets it right. What Jesus says is you can trust what John the Baptist spoke about me. His problem was not that he he didn't have courage or character or conviction. John has all of those things in spades and that's what a kingdom person has. He says here's the problem for John the Baptist. He, He didn't know who I am. The challenge and struggle of John is actually verse 28. He says, John is the greatest man of his generation, but he didn't have the advantage that you, people of the kingdom, people who are post-death and resurrection, people on the other side of the cross, he didn't have the advantage that you have. The advantage of, of knowing and seeing how God was going to use the Messiah to make this broken world right again. You see, even those of us who are least in the kingdom of heaven, we at least have the knowledge and hope of Easter. We have the knowledge that our God would take on death and soundly defeat it on our behalf. John didn't have that. And and yet, amidst his doubts and amidst his questions, he lived a life of unwavering commitment. I just hear Jesus in this passage saying to the church, let John be an example to you, Christ followers. Even when you don't see the plan, even when you can't see how things are going to play out, even when it's hard and difficult and you do not know what God is up to, hold on to the one. Hold on to God. Hold on to me. All right, verse 29 and 30. All right, we're going to shift into this little section, but before we do, I want to ask you this question. How many of you have read letter Bibles? Like Bibles where there's words in red and there's words in black. All right, that's cool. You don't have to have one, but if you do, you'll know this. Red letter words are words that are spoken by Jesus, and black letter words are words that are spoken by someone not Jesus. Okay, good, right. In this case, the author. In this case, Luke. So all of a sudden, we've had a lot of red letter words. Verses 24 through 28 have all been red letter. But now verses 29 and 30, we're back to black ink. And I bring that up because I want you to know this. This is the moment in the passage when Luke will all of a sudden insert his interpretation of what's going on. It's like he's got Jesus in this story, in this dialogue with John's disciples and the crowd. And all of a sudden, Luke just goes, time out. In case you're missing what's happening here, let me just give you some info. And that's what's happening in these two verses. Here's what he writes. All the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right because they had been baptized by John. But the Pharisees and the experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. Friends, Luke tells us just in the same way that Jesus has just told us there's two kinds of people in this world. Luke says there are people in this world that desperately want the comforts and luxuries that this planet offers and they will use whatever means necessary, even religion, even the name of God to get it. Luke says that's one way to live. Try to use God to get more for yourself here. Because really it's about you and your story and God fitting into that. There's people who live that way. That's one way to approach it. And then Luke says, then there's John's way. There's people who live like John. People who come to God with repentant heart. People that understand their desperate need for him. People who come to God not with a what will you do for my life attitude, but with a what will you do with my life attitude. That's the right response to the gospel. That's the right response to a God who would give himself up for his people. You see, one thing that we must understand here, friends, is the people who come 
who reject John and who reject Jesus, they're the people that feel very capable. They're the people that feel very religious. They're the people that feel righteous. They're the ones who feel like, I've got lots to offer. The ones who accept Jesus, they're the ones who know they have nothing. They're the ones who understand their sin and their brokenness and their failures. You see, this is Luke imploring the early church to, like John, live for Christ no matter what the cost because of our desperate need for Him. Remember how desperately you need you need Him? Cling to Him even when the walk gets difficult. And then there's this image-filled rebuke and challenge by Jesus to finish this passage, starting in verse 31. Jesus went on to say, to what then can I compare the people of this generation, and that's a statement that is often used in, in, uh, by a rabbi for introducing a parable. So Jesus is saying in this moment to close, let me just paint you a picture. Let me paint you a picture of where you as a people, where you as a generation pan out in all of this when you don't go the way of John and you go the way of Herod. Jesus went on to say, to what then can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other. We played the pipe for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not cry. Now, to understand this, it seems a little cryptic, doesn't it? It's like, what does that mean? Here's what it means. This is the best commentary on on this this passage. It says that in Jesus' day... At the center of every town was a marketplace. There's this common area. This happened all over Galilee, all over these little towns, where people would come together to exchange goods and do business. And of course, when the mothers would come during the day to the marketplace, they would bring with them their children, who would gather and play together. Um, This is just, again, part of everyday, normal Galilean village life. And what kids often did back then was the same thing that, that kids do in our world today. They would observe and experience events in their culture, in their families, from their parents, and then they would imitate them and they would use them as sort of uh, play playtime activities. And it's how why our kids in our society today play things like what? House, shopping. How many kids have like one of those little plastic you remember the little plastic shopping cart? Why does it, who would want to play shopping? Why would you play shopping? I don't even like shopping now and I get to go shopping with real money. It's not fun at all, but for a kid it's fun because they're imitating what they see in mom and dad. The kids play doctor, they play school. You know, Pastor Matt's kids, he tells me they play church. That's what pastor's kids do, I guess. And for a while, Milo was like, it liked to imitate being me. He was Pastor Dave, but then as soon as Pastor Paul showed up, he shifted and now he's Pastor Paul. So I got one-upped, which sort of hurts my feelings, Milo. But we can talk about that later. Milo's like, not okay with me using him. I did not clear this with him. Okay. Um, Anyway, the kids in this society, in Jesus' society, would do the same stuff. They would play things they saw their parents doing. And because of this, the two most popular games children would play would be, as strange as it sounds, wedding and funeral. Because those were the two biggest events in any kind of Galilean village town. No more bigger events than, no more public events than weddings and funerals. So they'd play. And Jesus says this to the crowds. Here's what he's saying to them. Here's an image for you to ponder. Here's something for you to think about as we talk, as we discuss the kingdom and what life following me looks like and these things. Think about this. Think about children who ask others to play. And those children say, no, you're not playing the way I want to. I refuse. That'd be like people who ask God to send a savior and send a deliverer and bring his kingdom. And when God doesn't, 
send the person who does what he wants. They say, no, God, I'm taking my ball and I'm going home. I don't want to play with you. This would be like, you know, when children, when children play and the kingdom comes and they say, God, it's not good enough for me. It's not what I expected. It's not what I wanted. So we're only playing if we can play on my terms. Jesus says, that's, that's what this generation is like when they reject me as Messiah. God, we only want the Messiah we want, not the Messiah you want. To what then can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other. We played the pipe for you. Pipe was an instrument played at a wedding. And you did not dance. We sang a dirge. So you'd sing a dirge where? At a funeral. And you did not cry. You won't even cry. You won't even come play funeral. And Jesus says, you are like spoiled, rotten, little children. You aren't playing the way we want you to play, God. You're not doing it right. You ever heard kids say that? You ever play with your kids and they say, you're not doing it right. Can you imagine saying that to God? Jesus says, this generation, and friends, this is where the warning comes in because what he's saying to the church is, don't let this be you, church. Is telling God that his Messiah and Savior and Son is not doing it the way we want him to. And you know, this morning, before the first service, we were sitting in the front row, Pastor Matt and I, before our wives were here, we, we sit together when we don't have our wives, which is maybe another problem. But um, uh, and he turned to me during worship and he said, you seem really heavy today. I said, yeah, I am. I'm heavy today. He said, what's going on? And I said, I don't know. I, I, didn't really, I, didn't, I didn't really know. I hadn't really thought about it. But then as worship went on, I thought about it more. And here's, here's why I'm heavy today. Because I see this issue. I see this problem. I see exactly what Jesus is talking about here all over the American church. A church that says, God, we're all for you when you fit into our plan. And you know what hurts even more is I see, I see this attitude all over myself. I mean, if I'm really honest, I like it when things go as planned. I like it when things go as expected. I like success. I like it when my my kids are doing well and my marriage is good and church is going fine and numbers are up and people like my sermons, so send an email if you want. But I, I love it. And it's like, God, you're so good. You're so good. You're so good. But you know, things start to go wrong and sometimes... I'm ready to pull the ripcord, you know? God, where are you? How could you do this to me? And he, I think God must be thinking to himself, Tashiri, you're so far away from the basement pit dungeon that John was thinking in. What would you ever do if you ended up someplace like that? And that challenges me. It, it rips into my soul and causes me to, to reconsider how committed I truly am to God. Jesus closes out with this short phrase. He says, wisdom is proved right by her children. Just this, this challenge, this exhortation that he, that he ends with, that Luke you know, finishes this passage with. And what he's saying and what he's, he's, he's begging the church is be wise. Wisdom will embrace God and all that he has. Wisdom will receive God. Wisdom understands her, her desperate need for God, no matter, no matter where he leads or where he goes. Wisdom says, no matter what my life looks like, no matter what the situation is, I have enough because I have the one. And that's our series, friends. That's this, this next stretch of scripture. We're going to be talking about the one. 
who he is and what it looks like to follow him. But the challenge today is this. No matter what life brings, cling to Jesus. Don't fit him into your plan. Say, God, I want to be a part of your plan no matter where it leads. And when it gets hard and when it gets challenging, I will cling to you. I will follow you the way John followed you. Make that your prayer. Let me pray. Father, thank you. I thank you for suffering. It's an easy thing to thank you for, Lord, when you're not in the middle of it because there's some in this room who are in the middle of it. They were in the middle of something big and they're tempted to, to wonder, Lord, if you're there. I pray that, Holy Spirit, you would remind them that you just speak to their souls and remind them that you are with them every step of the way. Even if it gets worse, I pray that our community would rally around those people and that we would be a community that, that builds people up and encourages them to cling tight to you, Jesus, even when we don't know your plans. Maybe, may we be the kind of church, Lord, that doesn't just praise you when things are good, but seeks you and loves you and worships you even when things are tough. We love you, Lord. We thank you. And it's all in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.